0: Romans 10, verses 9 through 13, these are God's words. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him, for whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved." Amen. this ends this reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. Really, the portion that we are considering this evening is verses 10 through 13, that if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, sorry, uh, verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, uh, and so forth, uh, until verse 13. Uh, But it really does pick up from uh, verse 9, confessing with our mouth uh, the Lord Jesus and believing in our heart uh, that God raised him from the dead and that we will be saved, verse 9. Or that this uh, believing and confessing is unto salvation, uh, verse 10, or shall be saved. Verse 13. Uh, and indeed, the apostle is picking up uh, his thesis statement back from chapter 1 and verse 16. The reason that he is going to preach the gospel when he comes to Rome, that that's what he's eager to come to do uh, in Rome among the Roman believers in that famous congregation, uh, is because it is the power of God for salvation, first for the Jew and then. For the Greek, uh, which he uh, makes the same point here as he's talking about salvation, uh, a salvation that is both uh, for the Jew and for the Greek here in verse 12, and a salvation that is by the power of God. Now, it's important when we come and we hear that we must employ our hearts uh, and our mouths as verse 10 repeats and emphasizes from verse 9, that this comes by the power of God, that it is God who has put his word in our heart and God who has put his word in our mouth. And uh, thankfully, you can even hear, uh, even in just saying it that way, can't you? Uh, Deuteronomy 30 again. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14, uh, that... The word is not afar off, uh, that we must ascend into heaven to get it or to go across uh, the sea, or as uh, the Spirit authoritatively paraphrases here or exposits here, uh, go down into the depths. But that it is God who has brought it near. And where has God brought his word? He is the one who has brought his word into our heart. As we believe, into our mouth, as we confess. And so this is about God's power for salvation, or God's sovereign salvation. And he continues then on the theme, verse 10 God's sovereign salvation always includes whatever is necessary. It always includes uh, whatever is necessary. Uh, The doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, the truth of God's sovereign grace in bringing people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ does not mean that someone can be saved without believing or saved without confessing him. And so God's sovereign salvation always includes whatever is necessary in verse 10. But God's sovereign salvation will always be completed. If believing and confessing are necessary, then believing and confessing are provided. And if believing and confessing are provided, then everything else will be provided. God will not make a false start in saving you. He will not bring you to faith and bring you to confession and then not give you sanctification and not give you perseverance and not give you glorification. God's sovereign salvation will always be completed and because um, uh, he begins uh, the work, at least uh, the application of redemption to us in our own lives uh, precisely through faith, this depending upon him, We can be sure that he upon whom we depend will succeed and will be faithful. That hope in him will not be put to shame. And so we'll see that in verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And then verses 12 through 13, God's sovereign salvation is for every kind. Of needy sinner. This is not just for Gentiles. There are Jews who believe this. Paul himself uh, believes this, as he's going to say at the beginning of the next chapter. Uh, of course, Israel is not uh, fully rejected. He's an Israelite. But it is also for the Greek, of course, as well. It's for every kind of needy sinner. There's no sinner who can rightly say, this is not genuinely offered to me. There's no possibility of salvation for me in Jesus. Well, there's no, possible, no, no possibility of salvation for you outside of Jesus. That much is certain. But if you believe in him and you confess him, you will be saved. Whether you're Jew or Greek, whether you are murderer, adulterer, pervert, th- thief, Sabbath breaker, gossip, whatever you have been. He saves from all of them. Whether you are light or dark, intelligent, unintelligent, tall, short, all kinds. Whoever, whoever. There are no other qualifications other than the Lord himself. Because his salvation is a Sovereign salvation, salvation by sovereign grace. And so in the first place then, God's sovereign salvation always includes whatever is needed. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. Uh, You see, uh, we have to believe with our own heart and with our own mouth. Uh, We're picking up now From uh, verse 9 last week, if you confess with your mouth, and if you believe in your heart, this is something you have to do with God. Your parents can't do it for you. Uh, You're not just agreeing hypothetically that hearts that believe get saved, or that mouths that confess get saved. No, you must believe with your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. You see, a real work of the Lord produces a real response. It's completely irrational to say that because God is the one who does this by his grace, that, uh, that somehow uh, believing and confessing become less necessary or less needful or that you can be saved without it. No. The real God who does a real work gives real believing and real confessing. Now He doesn't call upon you to produce the ability to believe or the ability to confess. They're not even abilities per se. In fact, Believing is the abandoning of all of our ability altogether. And so it is obvious that faith must come from grace. But he doesn't leave us at faith. He brings us to confession. He he doesn't leave us at justification. He brings us to sanctification as well. Now, we're not called upon to produce the ability to do any of it. Whether the believing, which is a not doing, or the confessing and the walking with him, which are doing, and yet he gives all. We're not commanded to produce the ability, but we are most certainly commanded to respond. You're commanded to believe. Of course, as you respond, as you hear, and the Spirit convicts you, and you say, yes, I must, for for forgiveness from my own sin, for obtaining my own right standing with God, I must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. His saving, anyone else does not save me. He must be my Savior. I must rest entirely upon him. I rest upon you alone, Lord Jesus. Save me. Of course you know theologically or will come to know theologically that it is God who gives you to do that but you're not, to, you're not instructed to figure out if God is doing that. You are just appealed to, commanded to, pleaded with, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and confess him with your heart and with your mouth. Notice, with the heart one believes unto righteousness. Uh, The heart, of course, is the control center uh, of all of the faculties of the soul, the the intellect, the affections. Sometimes, uh, uh, abbreviatedly, we think of affections as emotions and the will. You're to set your whole self upon the resurrected Lord Jesus. This, of course, is what the believing is particularly tied to uh, in verse 9. Confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and we're going to come to the mouth next because the order is reversed in verse 10. but believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Now, we, don't, we mustn't put too strong a distinction here because you should certainly confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, not just believe it in your heart. And you must certainly confess or believe in your heart that Yahweh, Yahweh the Son, uh, has become Jesus the Christ. You you are not merely to, to say with your lips that Jesus is God and that Jesus became man. So we don't put too much of distinction, but here in, uh, in this passage uh, the believing is associated with particularly the resurrected Christ. That God the Son became man and lived and obeyed and died atoningly and has risen from the dead and he sits at the right hand of God the right hand of the majesty on high he is enthroned above actual cherubim not uh, not golden figures on top of a box on the earth but he and they are there and he is physically there and that he is all your hope you have set your heart upon Christ both for your justification that he alone is all of your right standing with God and for your sanctification that from him alone comes all of the conforming, the changing of your character, what you, uh, how you think and, uh, and your attitudes and your desires and your motivations and your conduct that the resurrected Christ is all of your hope, all of your ability, all of your resources for that too. Because just as you knew when you came to him and believed in him, that you could not do a single thing to regain right standing with God, and so Christ had to do it all. So also in your walking with him, in your wanting to reflect the character of your newfound, adopted Heavenly Father, adopting Heavenly Father. He adopted you, not you, him. Uh, Wanting to reflect his character and become more like Jesus. and, uh, And as you desire it so much, you have found that you don't have it in you. And yet you have set your heart upon the resurrected Christ. He has it in him. And so we must be intellectually convinced that this is is how we genuinely think reality is, that the great reality from which and under which all other reality exists is God himself, And particularly now God himself, who has revealed himself in his son, especially, not just by his word, certainly by his word, but especially by the word made flesh, whose resurrected, glorified flesh sits upon the throne of heaven, just as much, even more certain to you. That I stand here on earth and preach. That you be convinced with your mind of the resurrected Christ. That you be moved with your heart, moved by his glory and his power to worship him. Moved by his self sacrificial love to love him who has loved you. Moved by his wisdom and his faithfulness to entrust yourself completely to him so that there's not just the intellectual that is a function of the heart, but the affectional and then compelled in your will to respond to him, to give him in what he has commanded, the worship that is the expression of that adoration, to give him in the obedience that he has commanded, that love that is the expression of your affection and obedience to all of His law. With the heart, one believes unto righteousness, both the righteousness of a right standing with God, which is yours entirely by imputation, but also the righteous character and righteous conduct that you must have to come at last into that new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And you must be righteous to be there. And if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be. But not just believing with the heart, also confessing with the mouth is required and therefore, it's something that the, uh, that the Lord produces, provides. In other words, a merely internal Christianity, a Christianity is just in the heart, or even worse, misunderstanding and abbreviating the word heart just in the sentiments, sort of cloud of feeling, as it were, a merely internal Christianity is an imaginary Christianity. Now we're coming to that, aren't we? In the Book of James as well. And God's mercy to us—we we actually um, just tomorrow in the first thirteen verses of Chapter Two will make a good start. But he really hits it, and the rest of Chapter Two in the Book of James—a merely internal Christianity. Is an imaginary Christianity. It must be in your heart, but it must not be confined to your heart. It must be confessed with your mouth and lived out in your life. And what is it that we confess, especially that Jesus is Yahweh and that Yahweh, the Son particularly, became Jesus the Christ? We get that from the previous verse in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, so you, with your mouth, must learn to speak about Jesus as the living God, the one, only, and true God. You realize that your mouth exists to serve and praise the Lord. Jehovah, Yahweh, Jesus. You don't just confess his divinity. You confess the Lord Jesus. You confess his incarnation, the reality of his humanity. And we must learn then to speak about him, not just rightly, but if, if this is true of him, then to speak rightly of him is not just to speak theologically accurately, is it? It's to speak reverently. This is why it is such a huge deal. The way we use the name of our Lord and the ways that we refuse to use the name of our Lord. Can someone who really knows That Yahweh the creator, the only, the only true God, the one who is in himself and everything else depends upon him for existence. That, that this God has become added to himself. Humanity has become a man for our sakes. And even in his humanity now, he's no longer in his humiliation. We confess the Lord Jesus whom we believe in our hearts has risen from the dead and he sits on the throne of glory. But we know that with respect to his divinity, we are always in his presence and that our lips exist for his praise. Now our fleshliness is dreadful and it continues for the rest of this life. But whenever we speak an irreverent syllable about Christ, we are exposing, aren't we, that in that moment we cannot possibly be aware of who he is, let alone what he has done. And So we tremble for brothers and sisters in the church who let a blasphemy about Christ, about God slip here and there. Not because we are so insistent uh, on checking and matching the list of permitted syllables, but because there is a knowledge of Christ that comes out of our lips. We must confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus we must confess him before men there's a wonderful tie in here to what we just heard preached in Matthew 5 verse 16 remember the uh, the Lord well and uh, even back all the way to uh, verse 14 but uh, the Lord having put his people on the hill or the Lord picking the place for each lamp, where he puts it, which stand he puts it on, and uh, before which men that particular lamp will shine. Your Father in heaven, your Lord Jesus, your God, the Holy Spirit, has assigned to you the particular stand upon which he has placed you. And one of the good works, then, that we are uh, to do is Uh, as we uh, let our light shine before men, is the good work of confessing Jesus. As he's going to say in about five chapters time in Matthew, uh, that if we confess him before men, he'll confess us before the Father in heaven. And so it's an essential part of the Christianity into which the real Lord really saves us, that we really confess him with our own mouth before men, that we confess Him in our family, in our particular family, our particular home, that we confess Him in our particular church. Of course, the best time, uh, the appointed time, the great appointed time for doing so in the family is family worship, but also in the family is the family at public worship, but in, in the congregation is especially. The public worship. But then especially with believers. You remember we are called. By his name. And we must not blaspheme. The name by which we are called. By mistreating one another. This is something that is going to be in tomorrow's devotional passage. In James chapter 2. And then again later in the book of James. That our mouths that were created to bless. Christ and to praise our God and Father. Now that we know our brothers and sisters in the congregation, our brothers and sisters in Christ and under God the Father, we call them brethren. That's a glorious name. We call them saint. That's a glorious name. The world began calling us Christian and we're glad to have that name too. We're taught by the Bible also to embrace it. How can you curse, denounce, revile, slander? A brother or sister who has the name of Christ upon them, who has the name of the Lord Jesus upon them. Out of the same mouth comes blessing and curse, praise, worship, and attacking one another. This should not be. So we must confess him before men And he's also assigned to us, our particular community, our particular nation. For many years, where and when uh, we have lived, it was not such a difficult thing to confess Christ. It is becoming more difficult, and that's the privilege of the moment and the place where he has assigned you. So let your lights shine before men, confessing, Jesus as Lord and the only Lord. So God's sovereign salvation always includes whatever is needed. God's sovereign salvation will always be completed. Here, verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And we remember the whole quote. He's already given it to us in chapter 9, verse 33. And he's quoting here from Isaiah 28, verse 16. And you remember in that whole section of Isaiah, praise God, not only have we referred to it several times now in recent weeks in Romans, but we've just come out of it in God's providence to us in Isaiah. And the point of the whole section, that God alone must be all our hope. We do not split our hope in him with hoping in Tiglath Pileser. We do not split our hope in him with hoping in Egypt. We certainly do not split our hope in him with hoping in ourselves. So that we treat it as if it were by works and not by faith, and rather than resting on the on the cornerstone, we would stumble over him. So you see what he's he's saying here about this sovereign salvation, this. Sovereignly given righteousness of justification, this sovereignly sustained righteousness, even of sanctification. That if God has sovereignly saved you, begun your salvation by his power, and is continuing your salvation by his power, he will complete your salvation by his power. Do not let your heart waver and wonder, will I make it at last? Uh, Can someone who is struggling so much as I am in walking with the Lord, though I depend upon Him and love Him, how much that I hate, I still do, and how much I wish I did that I don't do, and uh, and you get uh, you you get overwhelmed, or it's possible to get overwhelmed by the difficulty that the Apostle uh, took us through his own difficulty uh, at the end of Romans chapter seven. He says, "Whoever believes on Him." Will not be put to shame. Your faith in Him, your dependence upon Him, will not disappoint. Because He will get you all the way there. Now, we've noticed at the end of verse 9, you will be saved. We've noticed at the end of verse 10, unto salvation. We notice at the end of verse 13, shall be saved. You see, the completion of your salvation is still future. This is what he's going to say in chapter 13 and verse 11 when he's urging them to wake up. Wake up and walk in the light. Walk as light in dependence upon the grace of God because your salvation now, he says in, in a few chapters time, 13 verse 11, is nearer to you than when you first believed. So he who has given you the faith by which you are united to Christ and brought into a right standing with God and adopted as the child of God and he who is giving you to confess Christ both with what comes out of your lips and what comes out of your life, he will give you all of it. He will remove the last Remnant of the presence of sin, every bit as much as he's brought you out from under the guilt of sin and the condemnation of sin and the power of sin, he will give you absolute, complete, finished, glorious, beautiful conformity to Jesus. Whoever Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The point here is not merely that it will happen. The point here is that it will happen because it depends on him. Whoever believes on him, how can a belief on him fall or fail? You will not be embarrassed in eternity at the judgment if you have believed in Jesus Christ he will complete what he has begun indeed not only will we not be put to shame we'll be glorified together with him, with him won't we? those whom he justified he also glorified why? because the God who foreknew them, loved them, predestined them to be conformed to the image of his glorious son. God's sovereign salvation will always be completed. If God is the one doing the saving, how can the saving be lost or stopped once it's begun? And in the last place, God's sovereign salvation is for every kind of needy sinner. And when we were presenting the outline, we made most of the point already. Whoever calls on the name of Yahweh Shall be saved. Notice now he is not saying first for the Israelite and also for the Gentile. No, there is an all Israel that is from all of the nations, and so there's a very careful use of language here, which he hinted at already all the way back in chapter one, verse sixteen. You remember there also he said for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And now he says there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's quoting then, he's quoting now from Joel chapter 2. Now if Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 8 uh, teach us that there's only hope there's only help and the Lord himself the Lord who has revealed himself now in Christ as Christ then surely this is for all the nations especially remembering how often the gathering in of the nations uh, in, uh, into the remnant and as part of the remnant uh, of Israel is mentioned in that opening section of Isaiah but now he, he picks from the end of Joel chapter 2, a place where he says a very similar thing to what he has quoted from Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28, 16, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, but Joel 2, 32, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And there it's very specifically God who pours out his spirit on all flesh So in the original context, if you expand well to to all of Joel, of course, but to Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, he's especially emphasizing all the nations, that this is for all the nations, that there's no such thing as a sinner who cannot be saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether Jew or Greek or whatever sort of sinner, He was, or you were, or you are. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. First for the Jew and then for the Greek. Why? Because that's how God is planning to show his riches. He comes back to this this idea, doesn't he? Here in verse Uh, In verse 12 that we had in verse 23 of the last chapter, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. So what is he saying now? He's saying he has filled not just a tiny little section of the Near East, but the whole earth with vessels of mercy. He created them all. He gives them all their daily bread. He clothes them all. He takes care of them all. But he is rich to all. He who is Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. And so he's showing the riches of his glory in his mercy to sinners. So whatever you have done, whatever your life has been like, whatever family or people you are from, whether you are here this evening or if you are hearing it right now online or at some time in the future in God's mercy to us, if you believe in your heart, with your heart, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, if you call upon the name of the Lord, the name of Jesus, you will be saved. Not just justified, praise God, yes. Justified, but Not just justified, not just sanctified, glorified.